0: Sorry, I had to uh, mic up there. So I invite you again to look with me there. And let's read through the first 32 verses. And again, put ourselves in context here of what's going on uh, in this chapter. So beginning in verse 1, here God's Word says, "...to us some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved." And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and and bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived in Jerusalem... They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had, be- who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Then the apostles and the elders came together to look into the matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, Why do you put God to test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking... James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about uh, taking uh, from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this word of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses and ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them uh, to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Judas called Barsabbath and Silas leading men among the brethren. And they sent uh, this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings, since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with these words, uh, uh, unsettling your soul, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth." For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed but to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they, had sent away, when, when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation, congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Now, there's the larger context of Jerusalem council. And again, we uh, we looked there on last Lord's Day about uh, the purpose of the council and the big picture of what was going on and why the council was necessary and why uh, uh, this action was taken. The gospel itself was at stake, the gospel of free grace. And certainly that was addressed there at the council in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice here that the council was made up of apostles of Christ and of elders from the Jerusalem church. Look there in uh, uh, verses 2 and 4, or 2 through 4, or verses 2 and 4. It says, when Paul and Barnabas had great uh, dissension and debate with them, that being the false teachers that had entered Antioch, saying that now the Gentiles must take on the yoke of uh, circumcision and, according to what comes with that, the keeping of the law. So again, those two are inextricably linked. If you have circumcision, you're going to be bound to keep the law fully. So this yoke was being placed upon them Uh, by these false teachers. And once Paul and Barnabas debated them, it says the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem. And then in verse 4 it says, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by who? The church, everybody, all the gathered church there at Jerusalem, and then specifically the apostles and the elders. That's the two groups from among the Jerusalem church that were making up part of the council. So again, the council is made up out of two churches. But the ruling issues are really going to come down to the apostles there from the church of Jerusalem. And specifically, there's going to be a matter that the elders of the church of Jerusalem will address. And and, and we'll look at that uh, shortly. But the, the, The council itself is made up of apostles of Christ and elders. Now, why elders? Why are the elders there? The elders from the Jerusalem church specifically. Well, they had a specific... Uh, issue, a specific matter that they had to address in this council. And that is that they are responsible for refuting the false teachers. Look there in verse 22. It says, There it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them uh, to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. That's Judas, called Bar Sabbath, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent the letter with them. Now, why do they do this? Because Paul and Barnabas could go back even with a letter. Even sealed with, you know, with, with, with James' approval. And folks there in the false teacher could sit and say, well, of course that's what they were going to say. They've been opposing us all along. But what we have here is eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses sent commission from the elders of the church in Jerusalem to go back and give verbal witness to what the letter has stated. So I, I won't go into to deep detail here, but in our current climate, when there is so much uh, false accusations and uh, uh, falsification and the technology that's, ramp, that, that's just rampant in terms of uh, giving capacity to falsify uh, testimony and to falsify statements and, and to create illusions, let me just say, nothing is more important than I Witnesses. That's the that's the biblical standard, right? The biblical standard is eyewitnesses. So they send eyewitness back with them, and that's uh, because the elders have a responsibility here. They're part of the whole church. The whole church is involved. The congregation has agreed. ...on the false teachers, but the elders of the church lead the way in rejecting the false teachers. That's why they're part of this council. They have a specific role as elders leading that church in Jerusalem... ...to address these false teachers who have come out of their ranks. So that's their specific role uh, on that ruling council. Now, they're not a body of elders representing many churches, okay... Remember, when you see the context here, there's two churches involved. And the elders that address this issue are elders from the Jerusalem church. So it's not elders from a conglomerate of all churches around the area that have now come here to make a decision. It's elders from the Jerusalem church addressing an issue that has become problematic for a sister church in Antioch. So these elders are from one church and the council is gathered from leaders among two churches, both the churches that are involved in the issue. Uh, so I say that because the Presbytery and the Presbyterian Church is just that, right? The, Presbyter- the, the Presbytery uh, is a group of ruling area uh, uh, um, elders from various. Visible churches, local churches that come together to rule over all those local churches and to make decisions relating to all those local churches. And they often go to this very text to validate that uh, methodology. And I'm saying that uh, with all humility, they're, they're, this text cannot validate that methodology. There's two churches involved. And the elders of one church are ruling on false teachers that have come out of their ranks and they're doing so because those false teachers have caused a problem uh, in their sister church and they're addressing it so two churches involved elders from one church are used to to uh, rebuke the false teachers okay so just a a little technical matter there because often this is uh, used as a proof text and i do not believe um, that it's valid in terms of a body of elders from numerous churches ruling over all those churches. So why was it formed? Why was the council formed? Again, to address theological falsehood uh, proclaimed by members of one church to members of another church, creating a theological controversy. Now what authority did the council have? So there's a question for us. Because we need to lock this down, too, as we think about some of these things. What authority did they have? Well, they had apostolic authority. Apostles of Christ were part of this council. Apostles of Christ headed up this council. They gave this council authority. Authority uh, uh, that resides over all churches. Okay? So now we have another element introduced here, right? We have apostles of Christ on this council. Now we have elders from one church and they have a specific role and they're going to deal with it. They have authority over who? Members of their own church there in Jerusalem. The reason they're dealing with it is because they care about their sister church and their folks have gone out and caused trouble somewhere else, right? They're responsible for, for, for taking the lead in this. However, we have apostles of Christ on this council and they do play a role. There's an issue that Apostles of Christ will take and address in, uh, uh, in this ruling. And they, the Apostles of Christ have authority over all churches, everywhere throughout all generations. So those are two different uh, realities of authority, right? So we've got two different realities of authority working on the same council. Elders from a, a, a local visible church taking care of an issue, that has affected another local visible sister church, and then we have uh, 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 apostles of Christ who have who give decrees, dogma that is authoritative over every church in every corner of the world until Christ returns. Okay, two aspects both going on, both in play here with this council. So let's look at a couple of things. Now again, th- uh, Apostles of Christ give out decrees that are binding on all churches. But look, I want you to see that they're, they're here. They're addressed in these texts. Verse 2, they're addressed. It says, When Barnabas and, and Paul were sent out, they were sent to Jerusalem, and the apostles and the elders uh, um, uh, uh, welcomed them. Verse 4, The apostles and the elders welcomed them. In verses 22 and 23 it says, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose two men uh, to go back with Paul and Barnabas, and that was Judas and Silas. So again, it was, it was good to the apostles and the elders. And in chapter 16, just one chapter over in verse 4, it says, now while they were passing through the city, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were at Jerusalem to observe all these things during the council. So again, it's the apostles of Christ taking the lead because they give the decrees. The decrees are binding on all churches ever. They're still binding today. In other words, if we sit here today as followers of Jesus Christ, and then the apostolic authority and decrees that come from the apostolic uh, teaching found in Scripture are binding on us. This is still true today. And that brings us to that very fact. I want you to see... The apostolic authority here. So principles of association is kind of uh, uh, the backdrop here concerning uh, inter-church relationships. But there is an element of apostolic authority that comes to us through these texts. So let's look at it a little bit. False teachers from Jerusalem had traveled there to Antioch. They had James as their authority. So when they go to Antioch, they have authority these false teachers because they're under the umbrella of James of James' authority. Now, was James an apostle of Christ? And remember this is James brother of John, not James son of Zebedee. He kind of took the torch from James son of Zebedee after he was martyred. So is James, brother of John, an apostle of Christ? You got a fifty-fifty shot, come on. He is. Yes, he is. Quickly, uh, I didn't intend to get it, but quickly. uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And here's this is Paul again speaking to the the church there at Corinth. And he says, For I delivered to you um, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Now the Twelve would have covered uh, James, son of Zebedee. He appeared to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Remain until now because, again, here uh, Corinthians was written early. So um, most of the folks, it says, here were still remain at the time that he's writing here. But some of them have fallen asleep. Verse 7, and he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So the James here in verse 7 is James, the brother of Christ. So he fits the criteria. He is an apostle of Christ, and he's he's the primary apostle of Christ leading this council because he's the leader of the church there in Jerusalem, primary apostle at the church of Jerusalem, which is the mother church, right? So they have authority. All that to say these false teachers had authority. They had the credentials of saying, we're from James. That carried weight in Antioch. But they were false teachers. Now they came out from James, but again, James did not approve of their teaching, right? What they write in the letter there. Do you see, you remember back in the letter, when they send a letter with these two brethren, they go back with, with uh, Paul and Barnabas, and it says, you know, uh, in verse 24, we've heard that some of our number, that that's the false teachers, some from us, they came from us, and... It says, to whom we gave no instruction, no instruction concerning what they're teaching about requiring the Gentiles to now be circumcised and to place themselves under the law of Moses. So we're not, we're not good with that. Yeah, they came from us, and had we known, we would have nipped this thing in the bud, but they got away. That happens sometimes, is it not? But now they deal with it. Now they're going to address it. And so they're letting them know, uh, we didn't give them this instruction, but we know that they've disturbed you and they've unsettled your souls. So now we're sending our brothers and we're sending a letter to deal with this issue. But that's how they came. They came under the authority of James. That's how they, they gained a hearing and were able to validate themselves there in Antioch. So they caused a problem there and now the church is going to address it. So the Jerusalem church, what I'm saying here is the church in Jerusalem is responsible to fix this problem. These are representatives from their church and they caused trouble in Antioch, so they're responsible. Now, why are elders from the Jerusalem church a part of the council? Well, I've already addressed it. I'm just seeing if we're up to speed here. I know this gets, the language a little can get a little confusing maybe. Why are they part of it? There's apostles of Christ on this council, what they say is binding forevermore on the church. So why do we have the elders here? This is a this is an important matter. I don't want you to miss. The elders have the primary responsibility for these false teachers. They came from the ranks. Yes, they came with the with James. Upon the, you know throwing around the name of James, that automatically gives them an end but it's the elders of that local church that deal with the matter of their teachers because they're responsible for who? That particular church. That's their personal responsibility. They're shepherds of that flock. They're not shepherds of the flock at Antioch. They're not giving decrees to the flock of Antioch that will be binding on all churches. They're caring for their flock. And their flock. part of their flock has gone rogue, and it's their responsibility to deal with it. You know why they take that up? Well, Scripture uh, principally teaches them to, to do so. But also, there's just this little matter of love and care for their sister church. This is a problem. And I, they're not just going to let Antioch deal with it. They're going to go take care of it. They're with a the source. Now, they're going to deal with a problem. So that's the reason that the elders are on this council. It was necessary for these elders at the Jerusalem church to take the lead in discrediting these false teachers. Because simply simply because they were false teachers that came from their church. And the same would be true for us. If folks, God forbid, folks come out of this church and begin to proclaim some false doctrine somewhere else in a sister church or on some mission field somewhere, it's our responsibility to go straighten it out. And that that's the whole church. But the ones who take the lead in that responsibility and making sure we do it correctly and nip it in the bud would be your elders. That's how it works. And we see that fleshed out right here in Scripture. This is a real space and time kind of bad situation. And you're seeing how it's supposed to be done rightly. So here the elders are doing what they're supposed to do. They're taking responsibility here because they were elders of the church in Jerusalem. They carry the authority over their church the church where they serve as elders. So they're going to make it right. They have the responsibility to address their false teachers. Now, within this council, these elders were used to address and condemn the false teachers. However, the apostles also had a responsibility. Their responsibility was to give, again, decrees, decrees that are universally binding on all churches, all local or visible churches uh, it's universally binding on them all until Christ returns. That's all of us. Ephesians 2.20, having built the foundation that of the church, of the universal church, on what? On the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So the New Testament church is built upon the apostles of Christ. They have that authority and the prophets. Again, the prophets, uh, that unique role that extended over until what time? The closing of the canon. Well, then the prophetic ministry died away and now the Word of God is sealed and complete and finalized. But the prophets and primarily the apostles of Christ were the pillars, the foundation on which Christ Himself being the cornerstone on which the church was built. Acts 8.14 says this, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent who? Peter and John. Why did they send Peter and John? Because they had apostolic authority over that. Now they couldn't send their elders in the same manner, but they could send Peter and John. Why? Because Peter and John as apostles of Christ had apostolic authority over that church as well. That's why they sent them. First Thessalonians 2.6 And this is Paul speaking to the, to the to church there at Thessalonica. And he says, Nor did we, and Paul is speaking of himself there, nor did we seek the glory of men neither from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Not just in Antioch, but in Thessalonica. Why? Because he's an apostle of Christ that carries authority over all churches. So there's the difference. Apostles of Christ and the authority of of local elders are both in play here. Apostles of Christ speak in the name of Christ as head of the church. And they do so to all New Testament churches. So what is spoken by the apostles of Christ is binding as if it was spoken by Christ Himself. Same authority. They have the authority of Christ. And again, binding on all churches. They bear the authority of Christ until He returns. Every, every New Testament church in every generation is to submit to apostolic teaching. 1 Corinthians 14.37 If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Who said that? Who is that? That's Paul. So what's he telling us? I have the authority that Christ has given me, which is I speak in His name. I have what we would call apostolic authority. Authority. So Paul makes no bones about it. So how does that apply to us? Why why this detail? Well, the one and only Christ of Scripture is the Christ of apostolic authority. The two are inextricably linked. We can't separate the two. That is to say, you can't have the promised salvation of Christ and reject apostolic teaching. Now, there's been great effort over the generations to do so the the premise of all of liberal theology is just that to drive a wedge between a perceived christ that that uh that this uh the folks promoting this theology have have conjured up uh in their sinful uh, uh flesh to to take that take that christ and and, and to tag uh, the, the the gospel and the grace of Jesus and then drive a wedge, a theological, theological wedge between the Jesus of their own imagination and the apostolic uh, uh, teaching of the scriptures. So it's been a great effort and, and it continues today. Nothing new under the sun in that regard. But the biblical truth is you can't pull the two apart. You can't have Christ. You can't have genuine salvation of grace alone and Christ alone, through faith alone and separate that reality from the apostolic teaching of Scripture. Both must go together. Both are inextricably linked. And it often goes something like this. Well, when you come to issues of the day, well, Christ is gracious and loving and kind. And you're self-righteous and condemning and judgmental if you make accusations of people based on their sexual preference. So when we come to an issue of homosexuality, people will say, well, apostolic teaching, that's just Paul. He's gone rogue. You don't see Christ speaking about that. When actually, we can go back to Genesis and hear God speaking clearly about the sinfulness of homosexuality. And guess who's in that uh, reality of the triune God? Well, the second person, Christ Himself, right? He's there. So He does teach about the sinfulness of homosexuality. And Paul, as his apostle, now clarifies that in more detail in the New Testament with apostolic authority. So there's no pulling the two apart. That's a false dichotomy that's been, again, permeated throughout uh, liberal theology. And certainly we see it in our culture. Our culture today is is ever increasingly moving in a secular way, so where we're just not concerned about the notions of Christ's forgiveness at all. But where there is still concern, there's there's an effort to divide the two. To have a Christ that is loving and kind and gracious and lowly and meek and mild. And to have mean, horrible, uh, rigid, Apostles that are rogue from Christ when it comes to issues that are touchy, such as today, gender identity, the binary of gender binaries, uh, the litany that would uh, roll out from the LBGTQ movement, the, the role of women in the church. It's often, uh, that that wedge is often pushed there with the role of women in the church where Jesus doesn't teach about women not having authority in the church. And so it's these rogue apostles, this Paul who's rogue that uh, goes in a great length about men having authority in the church based uh, on creative order. But we go back to Genesis and we see God speaking clearly about men having authority uh, because of creative order. And who's there? In that teaching, well, the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ. So this is where we have to think clearly about salvation in Christ, the ministry of Christ, the grace of Christ that is offered through His uh, atoning substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for sinners and the apostolic teaching that goes along with it. The two are always connected and we can't pull them apart. So how does it work? How does that work in our daily lives? Well, Christ is our mediator, right? He's the one that stands in our place before a holy God. He's the one that stands and declares us righteous before a holy God. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that He has done in our behalf because He has died there on the cross, a, a vicarious death, a substitutionary, sacrificial death on our behalf, on behalf of all who, who repent and believe on Him. There He has imputed His righteousness into our account, and He has bore our sin debt before a holy God. He has bore it in His body, leaving God just, and that He does not sweep our sin under the rug, but that He pours out His white-hot righteous wrath on His Son in our behalf and the justifier of all who repent and believe on Christ. He has given us the faith to turn and repent and take hold with an empty hand, the empty hand of faith, to take hold of Christ's forgiveness on our behalf. That reality is made true of us. That reality... Uh, makes Christ our mediator, our sole authority in the church. And so, how does that how does that actuate itself for us here in space and time? When we're thinking about apostolic authority, well, He is our sole mediator, and every visible church—that is, every church, every local church—in space and time, everywhere, all over the planet, until Christ returns—is free. From earthly uh, hierarchy uh, or authoritative hierarchies. We're free from that. Christ is our mediator and Christ is the head of our church and it's Christ alone. Do we have elders? Yes. Do they have authority? Yes. Is it, is it under apostolic authority? Yes. Is it binding only, only on that particular church family? Yes. And our soul head is Christ. Our soul authority is Christ. He is our soul mediator. But now this is how he works out his authority. He is, if you will, the the terminology is our heavenly authority. But this is how it works out. Our heavenly authority has two authoritative representatives within our earthly church, within our visible gathered church here. They are... The Apostolic Word and the Indwelling Spirit. Okay? How does Christ exercise his authority over his church, his heavenly authority? Through the Apostolic Word and the Indwelling Spirit. Directing the church through the written word of God. That's how it works. That's why his that's that's why When we say the apostolic teaching is binding on all churches, it's binding and this is how we're bound to it. This is how Christ as our mediator, as our head, as our heavenly head, this is how He works out His headship over us today. Authoritatively through apostolic teaching... And the indwelling Spirit. The indwelling Spirit taking the Word of God and ministering to your hearts the validity, power, and majesty and authority of the apostolic teaching of Christ. Both are linked. Okay, so that's how it works. So the universal church is united in Christ through the ruling of His Word and His Spirit. The universal church has no earthly unifying hierarchy. Amen? None. Zero. Zip. Nada. It's Christ. No hierarchy rules over us. We're autonomous. But we're autonomous in a context. We're autonomous as those who belong to Christ, our heavenly mediator, who exercises His authority over us through apostolic Word and the indwelling Spirit directing us through His written Word that He is Uh, as He has revealed Himself and preserved for us throughout all time. That's how it works. Okay? Now that brings us to a corporate commitment. I want you to see that primarily in verses 22 through 32. A corporate commitment. So we have Christ as our head, and our head uh, exercises authority over us through the Apostolic Word and through the Indwelling Spirit, and they both work through the written Word of God ministering to His people. So the Apostolic Word and the promised salvation of Christ go together. You can't separate the two. There's great effort to always try to do that, but biblically speaking, we cannot. We cannot. The two go together. But what about corporate commitment here? What I mean by that? Well, the church on earth should express its unity. Why? Because it's one in Christ. Now, unity with one another within a visible local church, but unity with sister churches as well like-minded sister churches. Now, there's some, some things we have to uh, work through there, and, and we need to be wise and prudent, but there should be an effort, as there was here, to, to, um, to commit ourselves to, to a corporate kind of formal association of like-minded churches, expressed informally, certainly, cooperation and, communi- and, and communion, but, but formal nonetheless, in terms of a formal effort. So this is good. Elders of a visible church should take the lead in this endeavor. Now it should be uh, the whole church, the whole gathered church, um, visible church there as part of that and united in this, but the elders should take a lead in this approach. So elders of a single church do not have an infallible authority. That's why they should take a lead. Their authority is not infallible. They have one. They have a real authority. Certainly not as the apostles of Christ, but a real authority. It's real. It's genuine Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. So there, there's, there's the Scripture right before us saying to, to resist submitting to the authority of your elders is unprofitable to you as part of the visible church. Now, are elders, is is there tit for tat here? Are elders to be accountable to the church? Yes. And if uh, if they're in sin or off base, the church must hold them accountable and call them out and rebuke them. Certainly. But in the big picture, the church is to submit to elders as elders... Uh, uh, give an account for their leadership and it's profitable to the whole church. So the whole church is involved. Elders take a lead role here. But certainly there should be consideration. I do believe and visibly here we see that. Consideration of, of uh, this commitment to associating with other like-minded churches. It's healthy. It's good. We see it practiced here. And um, we see it practiced here not, not just in, when, when things are going well but how they address the issues to keep the purity and the unity of these two churches together. They go to great lengths. They do the hard things to care for one another, to care for the spiritual good of one another. So here's kind of the foundation for why I'm, I'm speaking about this in the fellowship of, of local churches with one another. It's simply this. It's based, it's based on this premise that Christianity does not have an option of living a Christless, or excuse me, a churchless Christian life. Now that is vogue in North America, living out a churchless Christian life. That's just the end thing. Now there are circumstances when we have to be uh, uh, very gracious and very kind here in, in understanding of people's circumstances and issues. But as a theological foundation and a theological, a biblical principle, Scripture does not give us that option to just live a churchless Christian life. It gives us something entirely different. That we are to be immersed in a visible church. That the visible church is central to our life. The visible church is central to Christianity. That's what Scripture gives us. It's absolutely central. So the church here, Scripture uh, presents a visible church as central to the very reality of Christianity. And churches uh, have the responsibility to support and and care for other churches. We see that all throughout the New Testament. They're not living out as church on an island. If we were going to, you know, we'd come up with some pretty cool catchy names for our visible local churches, but I would say church on an island is not one. Even if you had your church on an island. It's just that, that's, that's against the flow of what we see in the New Testament. We see visible churches working to formalize relationships with one another and working diligently to do it. Again, it, it's informal uh, communion, but it's a very formalized effort to commit themselves to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll give you some examples here, just these two churches. Churches have a responsibility to support and care for one another. Here's, here's a picture. Here's an example of how this builds healthy, visible churches, healthy local churches. The church at Antioch sent money during the famine to who? To the church at Jerusalem, right? That's a good step in building relationships between churches. They cared for them. They were concerned for them. They weren't just, you know, they they weren't just kind of in their own little bubble, in their own little world, just stuck in their own four square walls. They knew about the issues and they did something about it. So they sent relief to them. And then the church in Jerusalem addressed the false teachers who stirred up trouble in Antioch. So they didn't hear about it and say, well, man, we didn't see that coming. That's not what we believe. Those guys are out of control. Well... Watch for lunch. No, they got themselves to the business of dealing with it because they were concerned about the effect it was having on their brothers and sisters in Antioch and wherever it might, where else it might spread. They dealt with the issue. They didn't just pass it along. Well, you know, they're not here anymore and, you know, what can we do? And by the way, you know, that, that's not an easy matter. You know, that's, not, that's even logistics are not easy there. Just to get there is not easy. Get these men there with the letter. But they dealt with it. They had care and concern for one another. So these churches committed to, co- to cooperating with, uh, with one another and other churches. And, and here's the flow. So here's why I say this. You know, Yes, it's good. It's healthy. We should be praying for this. We should desire this. This is something we should work towards as a local church, associating ourselves with other like-minded churches. We see the beauty of it here. And there's health to be at. Is it harder? Is there more work? Is it going to require of you? Yes. Yes. Is it good? Is it right? Is it honoring to God? Yes. According to Scripture, yes. Now we see it just in principle here, and not, in, in, in not laid out in dogma in the text, but we see it fleshed out here. We see this in space and time being practiced and practiced rightly. But here's the core of it. Here's where an association with a sister church and all that comes with that and all the beauty but hard work that comes with that. Here's where it flows from. It flows from this simply. It's a natural overflow of personal love for one another in the visible church. How are we to live together? We're to prefer others before self. We're to defer self and prefer others. We're to love one another. And that love for one another should be a natural overflow in our love for other brothers and sisters and other visible churches. That's the core of it. That's where it boils out and overflows from that reality of God's call for us to love one another for we are uh, now hidden in Christ. Our lives are not our own. We are now transformed. Our hearts have been circumcised. Our desires have been changed. The selfishness uh, of our flesh is still there, but it's a fight. It's not our passion. It's not our desire. It's not our master. Did we have a struggle? Yes, but that's not our master. The love of Christ is our master. And a love for Christ means a love for one another. Our unity for, with Christ is our unity with one another. And that flows from the visible church out to other local gatherings. So there's the natural overflow. We live a shared life, and that shared life should not be confined to just these four walls. It's shared in here, and then it overflows to sharing out there. Other brothers and sisters, and the carrying of the gospel, and the making of disciples into a cultural context. So, should we shoulder one another's burdens? Should we? If we should shoulder one another's burdens, should we take on the shouldering of other uh, brothers and sisters' burdens beyond our walls? Should we? Well, you can think about it. You can pray about it, can't you? Romans 13.8 Owe nothing to one another except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. John 13.34 and 35 A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Let's see, let me check that again. Yes, give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another in honor. There's the heartbeat of Christianity in a visible church. Prefer others before self. Now, is that, is that, going, to, is that going to be a means through which God will purify His people? Yes, yes. Nothing about your flesh is good with preferring others before yourself. That is a work of God. But that's at the heartbeat, at the very center of what it means to love one another and for that love to spread out into mutual edifying relationships with other brothers and sisters and other visible churches. So again, as I said up front, contrary to the popular slogan, we absolutely are our brother's keeper. So when, when, when Cain responds, he responds wrongly. He responds in sin. If was the wrong answer, the answer should have been, absolutely, I'm my brother's keeper. For every Christian, brother and sister, you are your brother and sister's keeper. You are. And vice versa. So a little application for us to think about it. in terms of letting Scripture... Be all sufficient for us, knowing that Christ is all sufficient and His Word is all sufficient, and His Word uh, is binding when it's brought forth through apostolic authority. It's as if Christ is speaking to us. We can't make a false dichotomy there. His Word is true and binding on us, even the hard truths of apostolic teaching. Don't be defensive. Don't be defensive. These are prayer requests that I would encourage to all of us. Don't be defensive. So that's a prayer. God, help me not to be defensive. Isn't it so easy to be defensive? Isn't it so easy to just take what somebody said? Especially now, because I don't even get to look in their eyes. I don't get to see their face. I don't get to see their body language. All I get is some words flipping across a little screen while I'm trying to do a hundred other things. Isn't it easy? Oh, well, I know, exactly what, I know exactly what his face did look like when he said that, when he texted that out. I'm sure what his body language was like then. I can feel the huff. The, yeah, you know don't be defensive pray God help us not to be defensive prefer others to self that is a Christian marker only God gives that capacity there are folks on this planet that can live a lifestyle of preferring others before self as a lifestyle not perfectly but as a lifestyle they are called Christians and that is it and the only reason that they can is because God has changed their heart. He has done a supernatural, transforming work in their life, where He's taken out the heart of flesh and He has pl- and placed in the heart, or taken out the heart of stones, He's placed in a heart of flesh that is supernaturally empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God to live a lifestyle of preferring others before self. Again, not perfectly. Our flesh will fight against that. That's how that's how abiding and powerful sin is, but. God takes our life as a whole and changes us and our desires change and sin is no longer our ruler. The worth and majesty of Christ reigns and rules in our lives and we live a lifestyle of preferring others before self and it marks the glory of God off as abiding and working and resonating through His people. Prefer others before self. Pray that it's true, more and more of you, that uh, less and less of our flesh is showing through and more and more of Christ is showing through. And there's a marker. Prefer others before self. Be patient. Be patient with one another. Give the benefit of the doubt, okay? Give the benefit of the doubt. Our commitment to unity as a visible church is personal and public. Yes, it's personal, but it's corporate. It's public, The church at Antioch and the church at Jerusalem were willing to sacrifice lots. A whole lot. They sacrificed a whole lot to deal with one another's problems. It's public. Yes, is there more sacrifice? Yes. But it's sweet and good and honoring to God. Look, if not for this council, what could have happened here? Do you think about that? If they don't have this council, what happens with those two churches? What do you think? I know it's speculation, but think about it. I bet you they're not. I bet you they're not communing with one another very much, are they? You think there's a rift there? You think there's a break? And that break could then fracture each individual gathered church, right? Think about it. But they went to great lengths to care for these two bodies of Christ, these two visible churches here. So give the benefit of the doubt. Don't assume the worst. Don't assume the worst. Now, Again, take the context here. Could the church in Antioch have assumed the worst about James when these guys showed up? Could Paul and Barnabas assume the worst about James when these guys showed up? They're linked to James. and That's that's true. That's a genuine link. Right? Could they have jumped the gun and said, James is out of control? They could have, but they didn't. They said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go there. And we're going to listen. All parties, all sides, and we're going to sort this thing out. And we're not going to assume anything on our brother James. All we're going to take is what we know. These guys are false teachers. Don't assume the worst. Note how the church at Antioch did not jump to conclusions on James. Pray that you will not be a conclusion jumper. Oh, how terribly that just destroys our witness moment by moment when we jump to conclusions. Be willing to take your lumps. Be willing to get beat up a little bit. Be willing to give your brother benefit of the doubt when maybe they're a little too harsh or they've jumped to conclusions. Be gracious. Prefer others before self. Do not make your mind up concerning an issue until you have heard all sides of the issue. Amen and forevermore. Amen. Somebody. Let's Pray to God that we will not do that anymore. Proverbs 18.13 He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. If rebuke is needed and that's been sorted out, then do the hard thing of loving each other and give rebuke. And when you give rebuke, that comes with forgiveness. There's no genuine Christ-honoring rebuke without hearing everything out giving the benefit of the doubt. But when it's time and the Spirit is clear and all sides, it's time, rebuke for the spiritual good of one another and forgive. There's no genuine God-honoring rebuke without forgiveness. Rebuke and forgive. Rebuke and forgive. Luke 17.3 Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Matthew 18.15 If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's another way of saying, forgive him. Forgive him. So as we think about this, this, this desire to associate this biblical picture of association, we think about our personal relationships and our sharing with one another and how that spills out. And so let's take away in that context some just prayer concerns, some prayer requests for ourselves of preferring others before selves and giving you benefit of the doubt, and when it is time to rebuke, rebuke and never rebuke without forgiveness. Amen Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for our time together. We thank you for this text. We thank you for uh, the, the theology that is just uh, uh, the, that is, is woven within the tapestry so sweetly and so deeply and so uh, eternally beautiful in its nature and all the, the way that it unfolds to us and, and the application of our lives. Uh, we thank you for a space and time context that you or a God who has come down in the second person of Christ and you have walked among us. And it is not uh, a theology that we hold in theory, that we, uh, um, that we hold uh, loosely and philosophically. It is a relationship with, a living, with, with our living God through the second person of the triune God who has come down and dwelt among us as a relationship with Christ our God. And so you so sweetly teach us, all through your Word, how we are to follow our head who is Christ and how it is so practical and so uh, vivid and so alive and so joyous. Would you help us to walk rightly and circumspectly uh, as um, we seek to obey you, as we seek to obey you through Christ our head And as we seek to do so, through the resources, the means that you have given us, the apostolic teaching and the indwelling spirit that comes to us through your written written word. Instruct us and help us to love and know you more fully. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.